Welcome to the Ruby Book Club Podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're reading 99 Bottles of OOP by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen. Today we're looking at section 5.2.5, where we finish off extracting the bottle number class. And then we're going to look at sections 5.3 and 5.4, where we talk about immutability. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. How did you find this week's reading? This week's reading was interesting. I feel like it was one of those transition readings where we're about to do something new and we didn't quite get there. And so it was finishing up a thought from last week. And then we spent a lot of time kind of discussing this concept in preparation for the next thing so as a reading unit it felt disjointed i agree with you (laughs) the whole time i was reading sections (laughs) 5.3 and 5.4 i was like where is this going this is so strange and then Mm -hmm. i felt like it's been left on a cliffhanger because it's like now that we're done with that theoretical discussion as if sandy and katrina know exactly what we're thinking in terms of where is this going Mm -hmm. so i'm excited to see Obviously, we won't get there this week, but I'm looking forward to working out what we're going to be implementing later on down the line. Yes, which I will pretend not to know about. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. You're feigning (laughs) suspense and surprise. I will will feign suspense. Um, (laughs) Sorry about that. Okay, so 5.2.5, trusting the process. So here we address something that we've talked about, I feel like, throughout this book, which is just the process of taking really, really small steps. And we're specifically talking about the method of removing arguments via one-line changes. And when I did the workshop uh, with Sandy, we were very good, and in all the pairs that I was in, we were very good about sticking to those one-line changes. And it got easier and easier and more automatic and less thinking until we got to the point where it didn't quite work out. So this process works for everything, but then it fails when we get to pronouns. So, so far, we've used this process to refactor the container method, the quantity method, and the action method, but then we get to pronoun and things don't work out so well. We get an error. And so here, we get an error, which is argument error, wrong number of arguments given one expected zero. And so at this point, it might be easy to feel a little betrayed by the process and to think, oh no, this thing didn't really work, Uh, especially if you may not have totally bought into this idea of doing one-line changes at a time. But Sandy and Katrina actually interpret that a different way. We talk about how the three steps that we've been using to remove parameters are number one, alter the method definition to change the argument name and provide a default. Number two, change every sender of the message to remove the parameter. And then number three, delete the argument from the method definition. And so Sandy and Katrina tell us that the failure happened when we tried to do number three, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this whole thing didn't work. It means that we didn't properly complete step two, which I thought was a a productive way of looking at it. Right, because if we did it properly, then by the time we come to deleting the argument, it should all work. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do now is find the place where we've called pronoun with an argument. And that's within the action method of the bottle number class. And so in the else branch of the conditional, we have take pronoun number down and pass it around. And so what we need to do is delete the argument. And when we do that, the test works. 
And what Sandy and Katrina want us to take away from this, as you hinted at Saron, is the idea that the process works and that when we get errors, it means that we haven't properly completed all of the steps, even though we may think we have. Mm-hmm. And if we continue doing the small increments, the one line change at a time, as you said, you did very well in the workshop, then it just means that when you do come across an error, there's a really limited set of things that it can be so it won't be long before you work out where the mistake is coming from yes and that was the thing too when we were in the workshop we were it was very hard to get an error and not try to fix the error immediately and sandy had to say over and over again don't try and fix the error take a step back right the way you fix the error is to undo the last thing that you did and start from there instead of trying to implement another change that might take you a totally different direction than you meant to go in so that was really really helpful to have her just kind of stay in there and remind us to do that over and over again and in this example taking a step back undoing it reexamining resetting and then moving forward that's a particular problem that i've had when doing development particularly when pairing with theo where i see an error and then I, I'm just like, ah, I've got to fix it. And so I start trying to do stuff and running the tests and it's almost a bit desperate, like go back to being green. And Theo's advice was always like, stop, take a step back. Mm-hmm. What did you do? <laughs> what change did you yeah. make? What were the implications of that change? And that will give you a hint as to where the mistake is rather than just diving in. Cause often you're looking at it from the wrong level. If that makes sense. I was looking mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. deep when I needed to take a step back and look at the broader, the broader issue. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And so if we do that, then we'll be able to make pronoun work and then we can move on to successor, which we can refactor pretty easily. That one's a pretty straightforward one. And then we are done. Mm-hmm. And so we've got listing 5.21 forward messages to smarter number which shows the current state of the code base so we've got our bottles class we've got our our old friends the song verses and verse methods Mm -hmm. and then we've got the container quantity action and successor methods all calling to our new bottle number and then forwarding on to the smarter bottle number so for example with container it's bottle number dot new number dot container and no argument and then mm-hmm. we've got our bottle number class with the attribute reader number initialized with a number property. And then we've got all of our conditionals. So the container quantity action and pronoun numbers where we check what the value of number is and based on that return the required behavior. Yes. So I have a question for you, Saron. Uh-huh. How did you feel at this point? Because as Sandy Katrina point out, we still have a load of conditionals. Yes, And that was one of the things that we thought we were going to try and tackle now when we move towards this smarter object. So at this point, what were your thoughts on the code base? Right. So I don't feel great about both classes as a general solution, but I feel like things are more organized. So I like that there is a separation between bottles and bottle number. I like that bottles doesn't really know how to make all these things. It's just knowledgeable about how to compose the verses or the verse you know once it has all the things Mm -hmm. so i feel unlike how i felt with um the shameless green solution and the refactoring from that i feel like we're on our way to a more organized place so for example just looking at the bottles class and knowing that def container def quantity def action and def successor are all just uh forwarding their methods onto an instance of bottle number 
I can see that that is something that we can probably squash and make smarter. Like there's there's clearly a way to make that part better and not have necessarily four different methods to that. So that made me feel like, okay, the bottles class is on its way to something that is nicer and cleaner. The bottle number class, I'm still not really <laughs> thrilled by. <laughs> because like you said, it's still the same conditionals. And just looking at it, you know, I know we talked about the shape of the methods that we talked about, oh, if it's the same shape, that's helpful. And I'm kind of believing that that's true at this point, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm putting aside the fact that I know what like the, the ultimate refactor <laughs> is. If I didn't know that looking at this, I really wouldn't know what to do from here. Cool. What about you? What was your reaction? Similar thoughts in that looking at the bottles class, it's moving more towards the, the sort of code I expect from smart object oriented code. But mm -hmm. like you, I'm like, hmm, there must still be more to do in this bottle number class because we still have right. all of these conditionals. And I'm not sure where this is going. Yeah, and I feel like we've we've done so much work on this by now. And I'm wondering, does it feel like it's been a lot of work because we're being walked through each step and we've gone down different pathways where maybe it wasn't such a good idea and then we backtrack. So we, we've explored a lot of different options in this book. And I'm wondering if Sandy and Katrina were to, you know, live code the solution, how fast could they go? You know, like how quickly could we get to whatever the ultimate solution is? Because right now it feels like just a lot of work and a lot of time to get to this place. And we're still not there yet. How fast do you think you could do it now that you know the answer? <laughs> <laughs> I'd still be really, really slow. That's the sad part. <laughs> I need a lot more practice to get to that point. <laughs> So taking these feelings and going to the next section, I was even more uncertain as to where we were heading uh, because the next thing that we're going to talk about now is this concept of immutability, which I felt like came from nowhere, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it definitely wasn't prompted by anything. At least to me, it wasn't. So now we move on to 5.3, which is called appreciating immutability, which definitely seemed a little random. Um, it wasn't kind of prompted by anything. I don't really think we talked about immutability or mutation at all so far in this book and what's really interesting is the way that Sandy and Katrina describe immutability I thought was really cool where they talk about a cup of coffee and they say that uh, you know in the physical world things change all the time for example if you have a cup of coffee it starts off full hopefully and then you drink some and then it's it's empty and so it makes sense that things in our world change and so it makes sense that when we're coding, we have things like variables that assume that things will change and that they will vary. Yes. And so this is something that's described as very intuitive and natural for us, but mm -hmm. it's not a necessity. We can have objects and or rather we can have applications that are built up from immutable objects or so objects that don't change. Yeah. So when I read the word immutability, the first thing I think about is functional programming because that's where I first started to read a lot about this concept and understand that that was why functional, that was one of the key reasons as to why functional programming was growing in popularity because you had these simple, small, immutable objects that you could um, manipulate and you wouldn't have to worry about keeping state. And that's almost very at odds to how you typically see Ruby and Rails programs built up. There are all the objects which store state and which change state. And so... At this point, given that we've been going down this very uh, object-oriented mindset, I'm wondering how are Sandy and Katrina going to weave in this concept of immutability? 
Yeah, and immutability, frankly, is something that I've always been really intimidated by because I don't really, I don't get it, to be totally honest. Like, I, I understand, and even, you know, in this section, we talk a little bit about the pros and cons, and I, I, I understand the reasons why people don't like it, but because I personally haven't had those pain points or that experience, I don't really get it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, under, I comprehend it, but I don't really get it, and... One of the things that Sandy and Katrina talk about is how if you're very object oriented, if you're very object oriented, um, then you you might feel like it's very unintuitive. And for me, is very very unintuitive. The idea that things just don't change and cannot change, and in fact should not change. It's it's a very weird idea. I really want to pick up on what you said about you haven't felt the pain. That's I've had that experience a lot where someone's explained something to me uh, or a, a pattern or a new way of doing things and I can hear them and I understand what they're saying but I'm like when would I use that and it's often because right. I haven't felt the pain to know oh I wish I had something like x and I guess it's as we start working on bigger ruby apps that you will fall into a place where having and managing state really bites you and then you're like mm-hmm. ah now I see I should have made my objects in such a way that I I wasn't moving state back and forth and I I could actually have a better sense of I could have more more confidence I guess in what each object represented Mm -hmm. but I I I definitely think that the way you understand the way you understand new concepts does depend on how much pain you felt in the past related to that concept right right yeah, and 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 also they Sandy continue to talk about the example of the coffee thing again, and they say that if you haven't experienced this, if you don't, you know, understand what the um what what the awesomeness is of immutability, it might feel to you like you have a cup of coffee, you need to change it, you know, by filling it up a little bit, and instead of just filling it up, you throw the whole coffee away and then get an entire new one, and that's exactly how I feel. I'm like, but I but I have this variable, like it, it's there. It's 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 not totally useless, uh, and that's when you know, in the context of coding, I have to remind myself that objects, um, you know, are not as expensive as they might feel, and so uh, yeah, that's that's just a a personal thing with me is just looking at objects and throwing them away when I feel like they have they have so much more they can offer to the world. Yeah, it's not like it harms the environment in the same way, so you don't need to worry about recycling so much. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so there is a discussion around what the key benefits of immutability are. So mm-hmm. one of them is that they are easy to understand and reason about. So it's what I was getting at earlier when you're not managing state in different places, you just see the object for what it is and that's what it is. And you can always be confident that when you see that object later, it's the same as how it was when you last saw it. Mm-hmm. A second benefit is that immutable objects are easy to test because you don't have to worry about what about when it looks like this and when it looks like that. They don't change. And so the tests are way more straightforward. And you don't have to have a lot of extra setup that you tend to see in Ruby tests that have a lot of mutable objects where you've got to say this happens and this happens and this happens and now I have this object which is now ready to go into test you can sort of instantiate your object and that's it mm-hmm. yep and then the final benefit that they mention is this idea that immutable objects are thread safe so this means that if you have many processing streams that are accessing the same object you don't have to worry about there being corruption of the data or there being things out of sync because one thread 
of programming can only access the object at one time. So you know that Mm -hmm. you're getting the latest information. They're not going to have any sort of race conditions or things like that. So that's another big plus. Mm -hmm. And so Santa Katrina pose a question to us where they say, given that the verses need to progress, right? The songs go from 99 all the way down to zero bottles of beer on the wall. And knowing that we start at 99, when we move on to the next number, should we start a whole new bottle number and instantiate that by passing in the 98 number? Or should we mutate the value of at number and change that from 99 to 98? And when I saw this question, I thought, well, mutating anything sounds terrible. Just like, (laughs) just the word mutate sounds like, you know, we're making zombie variables. Uh, And two, it felt weird that you would mutate the number when you have a a class designed to deal with new numbers. So in this context, it felt like you should make a new instance of bottle number. What was your reaction to that? Well, that's interesting because... I think most people they would think would lean towards the mutating, but I wonder whether the discussion before has almost put you in a different frame of mind to think, yeah, new ones make sense. Because for me, the way it's, the way it almost seemed a bit loaded (laughs) to me, it was almost like, (laughs) so given that discussion, should we mutate it or should we make a new one? And I'm thinking, yeah, make a new Mm -hmm. one, obviously. (laughs) And so, well, so. So that's what I was thinking too, because I was because usually I think I would be all for mutating because that just feels more natural. But in this context, it actually is a new bottle number. Like we are no longer dealing with bottle number ninety nine, and the whole reason why we made the bottle number is to deal with specific numbers at a time. And I think that my answer would be different if we hadn't made this new class and we were just dealing with the one bottle class and it included all those methods. I think if that were the case and all the methods we have in bottle number were methods that we left in our bottles class, I would have said, let's just change the value of number. But we created the bottle number class specifically to handle specific numbers. So it it like is not bottle number 99 anymore. It's a whole new number. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. And Sandy Katrina finished off that section by saying, if you did lean towards mutating, then you're probably a victim of this bias that we tend to have, which is that creating new objects is wasteful and that will have performance implications. And there's a sense that actually that bias needs to be critically analyzed some more before we can say that that's definitely a reason not to choose immutability. Mm -hmm. And so then we go into section 5.4 called Assuming Fast Enough. And it starts by saying that there are two costs to implementing immutability. But, and if those costs weren't there, then it's a no-brainer that you'd go for it. And so the first cost is becoming reconciled to the idea. So choosing that you want to do it, it seems that you're there already, Saron. <laughs> and then <laughs> yes. the second one is that if you're going down this path, then you're going to create more objects in your code. And sometimes that could be a lot more. And so this is a totally new way of thinking mm-hmm. that we've got to got to adopt in order to do this. Yes. Yeah, and we talked about the the whole idea fast enough and this idea of of new object creation being so expensive in the workshop as well and one of the things that uh Sandy pointed out to us is that you know in all the years that she's been programming and I, I feel like Avdi said this too uh in all the years they've you know they've spent programming they look at their code and they think oh if I do this this is going to be the thing that slows it down 
and they're almost always wrong. Mm. And that the best way to know what slows it down is to actually do a test mm-hmm. and, and see, uh, to actually see what part slows it down. And that we are better off if we don't make assumptions and if we if we don't prematurely optimize for speed, because chances are we don't actually know what makes things fast and slow. Mm-hmm. So then we move on to a discussion about caches. Do you say cache, by the way? No. Okay. Do you say cache? No, I thought Americans said cache. No. Oh my gosh, no. We're not okay. monsters. Not Sorry. even cache. so (laughs) a cache in computer science is when you have a local copy of something stored elsewhere and there's this famous saying said by phil carlton had you heard of the name phil carlton i hadn't no have you no but he says but not not him yeah yeah (laughs) phil carlton says and because i'm not used to doing side puzzles anymore i didn't do the research i just sort of just took it that's okay. I forgive you. So, the, so the the saying is there are only two hard things in computer science: cache and validation, and naming things. And like you said, I'm very familiar with this phrase. In fact, it was introduced to me on my second day at Makers Academy, my coding bootcamp, and I've oh, wow. you know mm-hmm. I've experienced it or come across it many times since then. Uh, and so now we've already discussed a lot of naming things, and often that is a topic that we discuss a lot. And so now we're going to talk about caches. Yes. Okay, so as I said, cache is a local copy of something. And the point of saving a local copy is that you think it's going to increase the speed of your application and so therefore lower your costs. And mm-hmm. so the assumptions here are that your application will be faster and you will have lower costs. But Sandy and Katrina say that that is sometimes true, but it's not always the case. Because the key thing here is that when you have a cache, if you have variables that are changing, then it could become useless. And so therefore you need to discard your cache or update it. And that in itself is a costly, complicated operation. How do you work out when your cache should be updated? Yes. Yeah, and that is the most common complaint that I've heard. And again, I guess I'm, uh, you know, I just, I haven't felt those pain points myself, but yeah, that's like the number one thing that I've heard is figuring out when to update it when does the information go stale? The actual caching part is easy, but keeping up maintaining it, that's when it becomes a real pain. And so the word cache comes from the French cache, which means to hide. And so the point is that if you do get these caches that are outdated, then you can end up with really frustrating, costly bugs. And so the fact that you cached things in the first place, in order to have these performance benefit, in the end, you end up spending a lot of time trying to maintain this cash so it it can outweigh the benefits that you thought you were going to get and so mm-hmm. we can see that there's a relationship between caching and the mutation that we've discussed because if your objects are not being mutated at all then if you oh i've, ju- I've just seen it now i've just seen i think where we're gonna go with the code L- literally just came to me mm-hmm. but Ooh. if you have mm-hmm. objects that never change then you can store them away and know that your copy is always going to be good. Awesome. Wait, what did you see? I want, I want to know, what was the vision? Oh, my vision was, wait a minute, we're going to just make bottle numbers from zero to 99 and store them. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't really thought through this. It just hit me just now. And then like, that's it. You have your bottle numbers ready to go. Nice. I don't know. I don't know if that's what we're going to do. I'm just, I don't even know what that looks like, but it, was, it just came into my mm-hmm. head just now. Nice. 
Well, and that's why we read and that's why we talk about stuff. You know whether I'm right or not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to tell you. I will not tell you. I won't ruin it for you. (laughs) Okay. Yes. And so given that, what Sandy and Katrina recommend is to just write the simplest code you possibly can and then measure its performance once it's done and not to and not to pre-optimize for performance before you even know what those performance issues actually are. So given that, we should be more comfortable with this idea of immutability. Indeed. So the conclusion of that section says that when we look at any problem, the first solution should avoid caching, use immutable objects, and then think of object creation as free. And so if we keep those principles in mind, then we're going to have simple code, which is faster to develop. And then later on, we can look back and see, do we have performance problems that we need to take care of? Mm -hmm. And that is the end of 5.4. So we want to know, how do you feel about immutability? Do you think about it when you're writing your Ruby code? Tweet us your responses at Ruby Book Club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio.